fuck, Jen, I'm sorry. Standard Issue for all women. Hello and welcome to episode 180 of the Standard Issue podzine. I'm Mickey Noonan and I am celebrating a lot of birthdays this week. You're like my mum. She has about five birthdays. None of them are my birthdays, yeah, but they are three of my favourite people. Dunleavy on the 24th, so Wednesday if you're listening to this, mm. happy birthday Hannah Dunleavy. My mate Tina on the 25th and my mum on the 26th. So it's birthdays of excellent people all over the shop. Lovely stuff. You're almost more excited about my birthday than I am, Mickey. <laughs> Maybe that's um, because of what you're about to say. <laughs> yeah, I'm Hannah Dunleavy and all of that not drinking in lockdown has really screwed up my alcohol tolerance. So God knows how mine and yours birthday celebrations are going to go, Mick. <laughs> that bottle of whiskey might not be as empty as we usually make it because I also no. have stopped being able to be what well, I was quite a decent drinker. Depending on your relationship with alcohol, I suppose, will be how much you judge me on that statement. But, you know, I could hold an all right amount. And now I'm just like, oh, I'm sleepy. You know, we got that free wine. Yeah. Well, I took one bottle of that free wine and I don't even know what the quality of it was. But I'm thinking it must have been like 70% proof because I drank (laughs) three quarters of it and I was well pissed. Nearly a whole bottle of wine is a fair amount of booze, though. yeah. 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 Well pissed. I said. <laughs> what did you do? Did you sleep in a bin? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I did feel dreadful the next day. And I did, I did, I felt drunk. I had to get a taxi because I couldn't trust myself to walk home. Was it white wine? No, it was red wine. Oh, I have no explanation for you then. I'm Jen Offord and I'm here to tell you that dreams can come true. You're telling me, Jen, I can now get pissed for less than a fiver. <laughs> I got sent in the post a selection of snacks from Serious Pig. It fucking worked, guys. It worked. I think you need to stop giving them free publicity on our podcast now, Jen. The dreams come true. You've got the snacks. The dreams come true. Also, other dreams that can come true, apart from getting free snacks, are David Ginola on I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here with Richard Maidley. Isn't that enough for you? What more could you want in life? <laughs> I've got a friend who genuinely fancies Richard Maidley and I don't know how to help her. I don't know. No. She should maybe Google it, but I don't know where it would take her. Like, genuinely. <laughs> it could be really upsetting. Later on, our resident music expert, Liz Buckley, explains why even if you're a middle-aged woman like me, it is more than okay to climb aboard the Billie Eilish juggernaut. Hop on. I know nothing. Me either. Well, you're about to find out and perhaps become a 44-year-old fan, as I am. (laughs) I speak to author Kat Rosenfield about her new novel, No One Will Miss Her, and how she became an expert on the toxic drama of YA Twitter. In Journey Off the Blocks, I'm applauding Wait, the owner of Leeds United, and Wait, Kim Kardashian? Dirty, dirty, dirty Leeds. Can I just check, are they the same person? (laughs) Has Kim Kardashian no. bought Leeds United? This is incredible. No, some other hideous human has. I'm applauding them both, so, you know, keep listening if you want to know why. Great. And in Rated or Dated, we're watching 1986's The Mosquito Coast and asking all of the important questions, like what teenage girl didn't think of River Phoenix when she went to the bathroom? <laughs> it's very of a time, though, Hannah. Hmm. But first, you can't handle the truth, etc. It's time for the Bush Telegraph. Q Sting. Bush Telegraph. 
Welcome to the Bush Telegraph, in which... Um, um, sorry, forgive me. Um, um, forgive me. Forgive me. Um, 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 Peppa Pig? <laughs> now, I didn't know what that was when you first sent me that. And I automatically assumed that was a reference to the fact that you had been off on holiday for two weeks and that you didn't know what was going on and you'd only seen Peppa Pig. And I imagine my surprise to discover that's our actual prime minister you're doing an impersonation of. Yeah. And not a bad one either, I'd, I'd just like to say. Uh, it's pretty, pretty <laughs> close to the, uh, to the actual content. Just in case you want to check it out, guys. Anyway... So as COVID continues to rage around the world and we brace for another possible winter of discontent, let's remind ourselves, I know, I can't wait, let's (laughs) remind ourselves of a point we've consistently made on the podcast and that is that not all COVID experiences are created equally. So there are a thousand ways we could demonstrate this, including anecdotal and statistical evidence ranging from, isn't it nice to have a garden when you're not allowed (laughs) out of the house, to... A 60% rise in calls to domestic violence charity Refuge. One of the most obvious inequalities, and one that may be significant this winter, is in vaccination take-up. And the variation in take-up between different ethnic groups has been well documented, and is particularly problematic because we also know that the death rates have varied significantly between different ethnic groups. In fact, deaths in ethnic minority groups were two to four times higher than in white people who also had covid Numerous reasons for this have been considered. Vitamin D levels could have played a part, socioeconomic deprivation, lack of healthcare resources, etc. But it now transpires the reason may be even more simple and completely avoidable. Research has shown that oximeters, devices that are used to monitor oxygen levels in the blood, which are used to help assess the treatment that patients might require, do not work as well on people with darker skin. In fact, the study found that 12% of black patients who were given a safe reading were actually in the dangerous range. Isn't that fascinating? Health Secretary Sajid Javid has now ordered a review of racial bias in medical equipment with a view to introducing international standards to ensure better testing on all people of different ethnic groups before it can be sold. And I'd like to say that I'm surprised that such testing isn't already carried out as standard, but, well, I'm not. Nah. Writing in the Sunday Times, Javid said that one of the founding principles of our NHS is equality and the possibility that a bias, even an inadvertent one, could lead to a poorer health outcome is totally unacceptable. Is now the right time to talk about the impact of other socioeconomic factors on health outcomes, Sajid? I mean, yeah. Okay, let's look at the biggest story from across the pond, the trial of now 18-year-old Carl Rittenhouse, the not guilty verdict and the media response to it. Rittenhouse is either an American patriot or a white supremacist, depending on where you get your news. But perhaps we can just agree on the facts of the case. Haha. <laughs> on August the 25th last year in Kenosha, Wisconsin, on a second night of chaos and arson that followed largely peaceful daytime protests in support of Black Lives Matter, The then 17-year-old shot three men with a semi-automatic assault rifle, two of whom died at the scene. But hang on, what about those other oft-repeated facts? 
that he had carried the gun, which he couldn't legally own, across state lines to a town he had no connection to, and then chased and opened fire on protesters. Well, (sighs) the truth is, and by that I mean the unvarnished facts of the case, many of which have been available since immediately after the incident occurred, and all of which were discussed in the Rittenhouse trial, is that none of those statements are true. And if you think this means I am in any way excusing his behaviour, then you are way off track. I'm saying this because I believe it's perfectly possible to remain horrified and terrified by the events of that night and still be in possession of the facts. Rittenhouse lived 20 miles away in Antioch, Illinois, a town on the border of Wisconsin, He did not carry the gun across state lines. The gun was always in Kenosha, a town he very much does have a connection to, given that his dad, his grandmother and his extended family live there. His part-time job is also in the town. In fact, he was in Kenosha when the protests began. And the gun? Well, it turns out that while he couldn't legally buy it, due to some technicality about its length that I'm not going to pretend to understand, either legally or morally, using it was not against the law. And as for the chasing protesters bit, well, who knows what passes for long-term planning in the minds of a heavily armed 17-year-old. But the video evidence of the shooting shows that rather than being the chaser, he was very much the chased in the moments before the incident. I am fucking furious at myself for feeling the need to say this again, but none of this makes it okay. It just means it is what happened. So, why do we keep seeing these debunked narratives on hot take blue check Twitter and in opinion pieces in seemingly reputable sources? I mean, I'm not going to tell you what to think, but here's some takes for you to mull over. After the verdict came in, Pulitzer Prize winning New York Times journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones tweeted this. He carried a gun he could not legally have across state lines and killed two people. I mean... Journalist Robbie Suave pointed out that the DCC chairman, Sean Patrick Maloney, in layman's terms, that's a pretty high-ranking Democrat, had put out a statement about the verdict that included a reference to the incident that sparked the protests. And I quote, The unjust killing of Jacob Blake, an unarmed black man. There's a few things wrong with his statement, but let's go with the point that's easiest to debunk. Jacob Blake is not dead. How is he... And the many people who have checked that statement, how do they not know that? Several newspapers around the world, including our very own Independent, reported that Rittenhouse had shot three black protesters. Now, there's an argument to be had about whether victim number one, Joseph Rosenbaum, can accurately be described as a protester at all, given he had literally just been released from a mental health facility and appears to have just wandered into the chaos. But again, let's go for the easier fact to debunk. All three protesters were white. Mm. And and Owen Jones, who promised his one million viewers on Twitter, and I quote, the best analysis on the Rittenhouse (laughs) verdict, opened his YouTube broadcast with the crossed state lines fallacy and then visibly checking his notes to see where the shooting had happened tells us it occurred in a place called Kinshoa. Fuck me, mate. If you don't know where it happened, why the fuck are we calling this journalism? So why do I care? Well, because I got my first reporting job in 1995 and I still believe, possibly naively, that it can make a difference. 
In the last 25 years, the right-wing media has descended into downright lies in order to push its agenda, including, I'd add, promoting the narrative that Rittenhouse is a hero. If the left and liberal media goes the same way, to put it simply, we are fucked. On that note, I'd like to point out some good journalism, a lot of which has helped me see the wood for the trees on this story. Paige Williams is incredible and also incredibly long piece for The New Yorker called American Vigilante. It's fascinating and worth an hour of anyone's time, as is Jesse Single's breakdown of the trial on Barry Weiss's podcast, Honestly. And several left-wing journos, including Matt Taibbi, Connor Friedersdorf and Zed Jelani, are also talking a lot of sense about the media commentary on the Rittenhouse case. So I don't remember this happening because I guess I just had a baby at the time and my mind was elsewhere. I've had a couple of weeks off, so I've been deliberately avoiding the news. So I listened to the podcast that you mentioned, Hannah, a couple of days ago. And I was quite surprised because the way it's been framed and the stuff that I've seen on Twitter is that this is about a basically like a, a racist kid killing black people mm. and, and being let off. And so I was very surprised to find that that's in no way an accurate reflection of what's gone on here. I guess because it's tied to the Black Lives Matter protests, maybe that's why it's been framed in such a way. Mm. I mean, a lot of the things that I've seen doing the rounds are, you know, here is a picture of basically, you know, a black kid who's been shot by the police for doing something or not doing something in Mm. most cases. And here is this 17-year-old white boy who's killed three in inverted commas because it's two people and just gotten away with it you know it it does bear flagging that had he been a different race possibly the outcome would have been very different for him but that's not really it's not really i mean like it's it's not not how you dispense no it's not really not like it's it's an important point to make that justice is not handed out equally in the us or indeed the uk these are important points to flag but i would argue the very worst case scenario is that justice is shit for all yes and that's not what you want you want no whatever like i say i abhor guns i absolutely abhor them i see it as madness i think a society is fundamentally broken if you get to a point where a 17 year old kid can be out with a gun legally that's in that scenario as it turns out apparently legally yeah i find that abhorrent but if the law claims that what happened and that series of incidents was self-defense then Change the law yeah. or make sure that the law is applied equally, but just don't make it shit for everyone. The only reason that that he's got, got a good lawyer and got off is because he's become a right-wing cause celeb. You know, we talked about this on WhatsApp the other day, and I guess, like, for me, the, the point, you know, as a, as a left-wing commentator or whatever, like, the, the point, I think, that is important here is that gun control is the mm. point isn't it but it's just it's just been horrific and i'm well i'm well used to not trusting the right-wing media i don't expect anything of it mm. i very very rarely expect anything that i read there to be true i don't want to feel like that about the new york times i don't want to feel like that about i mean the new york times has done good reporting on it but it's opinion pieces fuck me <laughs> anyway do you want a bit of good news yes please well If you follow Dr. Charlotte Proudman, you may have seen that last week she tweeted that the government is going to criminalise virginity testing. Charlotte, who helped draft the law, added, we can change the law together. She's right. Today, and by that, 
I mean, as I speak, it's the start of the report stage of the Health and Social Care Bill. The Health Secretary will be proposing a dozen new clauses aimed at outlawing virginity testing. And Conservative Richard Holden has a proposal to ban hymenoplasty, which is surgery to rebuild the hymen. A big well done to Charlotte and everyone who campaigned to get a pointless, intrusive and abusive practice criminalised. Quite. More news next week. Well, you have equal pay, but, you know, they're not equal, are they? Sexism of the week. It's that time of the week where we ask who's Zooming who as we look at how the pandemic and that's right, inherent sexism have mm. impacted on the work lives of women. And if there's one thing I regret about the last 18 months, it's not using the phrase who's Zooming who more, to be honest. <laughs> you might remember how a couple of weeks ago, Hannah and Mick were chatting about Catherine Mann, a member of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee, who caused a stir after she suggested that working from home could be damaging to the careers of women. It seems pretty obvious that if you're not in the office, you're missing out on those all-important personal connections that, rightly or wrongly, seem to help you get ahead as much as knowing stuff and being good at your job. (laughs) But as we've already said today, not all pandemics were created equally. A survey by jobs platform FlexJobs found that given the option, employees with caring responsibilities were more likely to keep up homeworking. 68% of women compared to 57% of men. So far, so predictable. Mm Mm-hmm. But another study by Qualtrics and The Board List found that while 34% of men with children had been promoted while working from home, the same could be said for only 9% of women with children. So, what's the headline? Women, you do you. You're fucked if you Zoom and you're fucked if you don't. Ba-boom tish. Hi, I am joined by author, journalist and podcaster, Kat Rosenfield. Thank you for joining us, Kat. Thank you so much for having me. Your new book, No One Will Miss Her, is available now in all good bookshops. I was a bit concerned when we arranged this interview that I wouldn't be able to get a copy of it in time to read it. And I don't like doing interviews when I haven't read the book. But Harper Audio sent me an audio book and I listened to it over the weekend. And now I'm really concerned that I don't want to spoil it because (laughs) (laughs) it might be better if I knew nothing. Now I feel like I know too much. So I'm going to leave it to you to introduce the book with as much as you would like to say about it. Oh, gosh. Okay, uh, no one will miss her. Where Our tagline sort of elevator pitch is a gone girl for the gig economy. And the book opens on a beautiful morning in rural Maine where the town junkyard is on fire and Lizzie Lulette, the sort of town pariah, is dead in uh, the bedroom of a lake house that she was renting to a wealthy couple from the city somewhat south of there. That's basically all I can really say without without spoiling things. Lizzie narrates the book From Beyond the Grave, and you find out how she was connected to this couple, particularly to the female half of it, Adrian Richards. And then you also follow along with Main State Trooper, Detective Ian Bird, who's investigating the crime and trying to figure out what happened. And naturally, Lizzie's husband, Dwayne, who is missing, is the primary suspect. But did he do it? We'll have to find out by reading the book. (laughs) Quite often when I read a book that's structured like that, there is one angle that you're less interested in. You get to a chapter and you're like, I wish we were back in the city or at the lake. But with these, all three are equally strong, I think. Oh, thank you. I'm delighted to hear that. Yeah, it was really, it's really pacey. Why a thriller? You know, I love to read 
thrillers. I especially love thrillers that have a literary bent. Obviously, Gillian Flynn is a, a big influence for me. I always set out to write the kind of book that I would want to read. I don't necessarily end up doing that, but it's sort of where I begin. You know, the same stuff that gets stuck in my sort of mental filter as a creative person is obviously, you know, what I like to sort of indulge in when I'm trying to enter a fictional world in my spare time. It's not your first book, although it is your first book for adult. Two of your other books were in the YA section. I'm going to get to YA because that is your specialist subject. But I have a, I have a 15-year-old <laughs> nephew and he would be very angry with me if I didn't ask you a question about working with Stan Lee. Oh, by all means. <laughs> Which you did. That book, The Trick of the Light, came out in 2019. How did that come about? That was just some real luck for me. My agent was involved in the deal-making between Stan and Luke Lieberman and Ryan Silber, who were sort of like in development on this story, who sort of produced it. And they needed a writer to come in and work with Stan on the actual prose, you know, to execute this novel. And there were a few different people in the running. Apart from me, they were all men and they were all sort of comic book nerd mm. types. And they decided, luckily for me, to go in a different direction. Is that area becoming less male dominated, do you think? Oh, I think a bit. Um, I mean, certainly there's, a you know, a desire, I think maybe sort of retroactively to to undo some of the male dominatedness of comics mm. and to, you know, include female voices more and, you know, just to diversify in general, you know, all of the concerns about representation and so on that are so salient to culture across the board also apply in comics for sure. That said, I, I'm not sure that my being a woman was as important as the fact that I had written literary fiction before mm. and they wanted somebody, you know, Stan obviously knows how to write a comic book, yeah. knows how to construct a superhero story. The other two guys are, are steeped in comics, just like absolutely mega nerds, both of them. And then there was me, you know, and I was able to bring this slightly different flavor to the mix so that what we ended up with, I think, was a really fun, gripping story, but also one that had a lot of heart. Yeah, I bet. So I do immediately want to read all of your books now, albeit that, that they are in YA, which is an area that I I haven't really read that many books in. However, I am obscenely fascinated in, and that's largely because of an article you wrote in 2017, the, the toxic drama on YA Twitter, which was in Vulture, which... Around the same time, I became aware that there was also some just crazy, crazy stuff going on in knitting Twitter. And the pair of them both seem so, I don't know, so strangely fascinating. But now, with hindsight, seem like they were almost like a beta test for what is running in the wider community. So I, I thought maybe the easiest way, because it's such a big topic, the easiest way into it might be if you could tell us what happened to you after you wrote that article about the drama on YA Twitter? Well, you know, first and foremost, that article went more viral than anything I've ever written in my life. And I was shocked to find how interested other people were in this just sort of torrid internecine drama that had gripped the community where I had been working. It did not make me any friends in the YA community. I don't think I would have been able to publish a YA novel after that had I wanted to, but I was already moving away from 
that area of fiction writing for a couple of different reasons, not all of them related to the fact that some of the more influential folks in that sphere seemed to be kind of slowly losing their minds. And maybe more importantly, I received a lot of blowback from people who insisted that having written about this was going to endanger the lives of the people who I had reported on, whose behavior I had reported on. So that was very interesting. Um, There was this real sense... Yeah, there was this real sense of, we want to do this. We want to behave in a certain way. We want to exert an enormous amount of influence, but we don't want anybody outside the community looking at or talking about what we're doing. And I think that that's because the people involved in this stuff sensed correctly that what they were doing looked absolutely insane to anybody normal. Yeah, like I say, it does. (laughs) What you were describing basically was this culture of, well, cancellation, which is a word that gets used in various circumstances but this was full-on books were being pulled or people were pulling their books but but also you know denouncements of purity spirals and accusations of racism and cultural appropriation that that just seemed way out of proportion so hyperbolic Mm -hmm. as to almost be unbelievable right well I mean the thing that was very interesting to me and what I thought was the most disturbing about it wasn't just that you had a group of creative professionals really working quite hard to censor each other's work and you know we can debate whether this qualifies as censorship or not but I think it, it pretty straightforwardly does try to force each other to rewrite to force each other to cancel their books it's a, a strange tack for people who make a living telling stories to take mm. but also the the thing that was really quite awful about it was that you had had authors, influential adults, and not young adults, adult adults, Mm. kind of dogpiling and bullying actual teenagers and trying to sort of shame them out of investigating books that had been declared out of bounds for one reason or another. And that was where I felt that it was really, it was somewhat disturbing. You know, you had this community in which you have a lot of adults interacting with teenagers, being friendly with teenagers and, you know, exerting as they, you know, themselves would point out influence over teenagers who were basically telling them, don't be curious about this. And if you do, your heroes will go after you and call you all Mm. kinds of names. And that's the point. I think your brain first thinks YA, you're thinking this is young people, but it's not young people. It's adults behaving in a really juvenile fashion because I don't know, I can't help but look at something like that and think how much is a denunciation of a book actually a cover for jealousy or petty bullshit that's gone on amongst two people and it being you know brought to this great stage where everyone just piles on do you you think there was simple things like professional jealousy oh absolutely yeah no question you know it this was a cutthroat industry already it's been contracting there's less opportunity there's less money and because of that you know you will get people trying to narrow the playing field through you know both above board and underhanded means but apart from the professional jealousy angle, because it is such a small world um, and because there's less of a commercial aspect to young adult fiction, it's much more dependent upon the community to make a book successful. You don't have, because the readers are teenagers primarily, um, they don't have jobs and so they don't have money. They can't exercise 
exercise the power of their wallets to mm. make a book successful, even if it's been declared problematic. So you do have almost like social aggression being enforced in a professional sphere. And something that was interesting, which I, I started to understand the, the more time I spent reporting on this community, was that a lot of these dramas were really cover you know, where you'd, a book would be gone after or an author would be gone after purportedly because they had committed some professional sin. But it would really date back to some kind of social or personal conflict that they'd had with somebody who was somewhat powerful in the community. Mm. Now, it's interesting you bring up the words social aggression. I spoke to Carol Hoven back in the summer about her book, <laughs> Testosterone, and social aggression is a very much a, a female trait. I'm guessing YA is a very female-dominated area and I mentioned Nissink as well, another quite female dominated area. How much do you think the fact that the way women interact with each other has exacerbated what's gone on in YA? There's two parts of it. Part of it, yeah, is that women, you know, when we are aggressive towards each other, it's really in this way that translates very, very well to a social media sphere, mm. um, you know, spreading rumors, whisper campaigns, insinuation, all of this stuff, you take it onto Twitter, and it just blossoms into a horrible, <laughs> multi-headed flower. But the other thing is that women are socialized to kind of not make a fuss, to not be confrontational. And so I think that the reason that these dynamics can really take hold in spheres that are dominated by women is because you'll have some who are engaging in this social aggression, some who are, you know, using those sort of like warfare to their advantage, mm. but everybody else doesn't want to say anything because, you know, they don't want to be targeted. They don't want to make a scene. And so it's possible for this huge silent majority to just sit back and watch because, you know, they don't want to stick their necks out as their community is basically overtaken by this one mode of expression. That's really interesting because not long after I read your article in Vulture, I found myself at a book launch of a friend of mine. She'd written a book that wasn't YA, but while I was there, I encountered another friend of hers who told me that she was a YA author. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, I've just been reading about that. That sounds mad. Tell me about it. And... I'm a journalist, I've been a journalist for like 25 years and I am used to people being circumspect around me You know, sometimes mm -hmm. when, I, when I ask questions. But we, we had a friend in common, so, you know, I wasn't going to get my recorder out and I don't think I've ever known a conversation shut down so quickly as that <laughs> conversation. She just said, I don't really know anything about it and then went. And I thought <laughs> that to me is a sign that, that there is something wrong if somebody is you know, just worried about voicing an opinion on this, possibly because there were people around who worked in publishing or whatever. Mm. It's easy to be quiet, isn't it? And and think, if I just keep my head down, everyone will leave me alone. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that dynamic is really what got me interested in writing about it in the first place. It was just, you know, fascinating to see how much energy was being put into preventing it from even being discussed. Mm. Anybody who... You know, and I mean, I, this is how I ended up making foolishly enemies of people in my professional sphere. I mean, not because I'd not realized how much the winds had changed away from kind of the normal free speech liberalism that is what I would ordinarily associate with a professional community of, of creatives. You know, if you just made yourself known as somebody who was willing to kind of question the orthodoxy, a machine will kick into gear, very energetic, very organized to try to make you shut up. That's happening everywhere at the moment. And that's kind of what I mean about it being 
being like a beta test, being like this place where you just thought, oh, can you imagine if the whole world was that mad? And then sometimes I go on Twitter and suspect that it actually might be. I wanted to ask you about something that did happen to you, which was that a story was concocted about you online that you had opened Twitter accounts, you know, sock puppet accounts, and were sending racist abuse to people. And and again, I'm saying this, and it sounds mad. It sounds like <laughs> something children do at school. It's, your agent actually ended up unfollowing you on Twitter. Am I no, right? no, no, not not my agent. I want to be very clear. Okay. My agent, my agent stuck by me. She's a wonderful person. Uh, she's been loyal to me throughout all of this, and you know, and now we're we have a beautiful life together. And I have a new book. My editor did. Your editor, me. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. What's it like to live through that, Kat? Uh, it was harrowing. It was devastating at the time because I thought my career was over. It also made me feel like I was going insane because despite the fact that, you know, yes, it's it's difficult to disprove a rumor like that, but it was pretty verifiably false. And you could see that it was false because the account, there was an account, you know, that it was accused of being mine, but you could see that the person who was running it was clearly not me. They were tweeting at times when, you know, I was like in the woods without internet mm-hmm. service or, you know, at, at times when I was tweeting about other things, um, you know, it just... Oh God, it's it's stupid to even try to to litigate it like this. Um, you know, we're just getting in the weeds. It's like why dignify it? But the thing that made me feel like I was losing my mind was at the time that this happened, I did try to reach out to people who were spreading the rumor on Twitter and say, could you please stop this? It's false. It's it's really damaging. And you know, I'd like you to stop lying about me on the internet. And when I did this, it was spun instantly as look at Kat Rosenfield trying to go after and destroy the people who outed her as the monster she is. So, you know, trying to trying to stop people from lying about me online, I, you know, inevitably, no matter what I did, I was sort of the bad guy. And yeah, that made me feel like I was losing my mind. But then after I stopped, you know, finding that frustrating and and crazy making, um, I did find it very interesting. And it made me wonder what is happening in this community that is causing people to behave this way. Like you say, in this, in this area, you know, where your livelihood or the thing that you're aiming for is actually for you to be able to get to write something. It's a it's a really dangerous game, isn't it? In the same way that when I see journalists you know, failing to defend freedom of speech. And I think it's only because you're currently on the right side of that argument. As soon as someone's threatening your freedom of speech, you're going to start to worry why you weren't defending it for other people. Have you seen kickback? Well, I already sort of know you haven't because I've seen some really good reviews for No One Will Miss Her, which has been out in America longer than it has been here. But I suppose do you... Does it lead you to think that reviewers might still come to you with an agenda or or is YA and, you know, adult just A? <laughs> is that, are they different markets? It didn't occur to me that somebody might try to kind of set me up in the way that you're describing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I don't know if that just has more to do with the fact that I, I was very determined when this happened to me not to allow it to kind of (laughs) ruin my perspective and ruin my trust Mm. in people completely. That just seems like a a way to drive oneself completely insane. I did 
worry a bit because I, I know that there were some people who were not happy that I was able to continue to write after this, um, you know, when this first, I don't know what to call it, like a cancellation attempt when it was unsuccessful. I know that there were some people who were unhappy about that. And, um, you know, when my new book was announced, people were not happy about that. And so I did worry that maybe I would end up subject to one of these campaigns to, for instance, you know, drag down the book's Goodreads rating before mm. its release, um, you know, which is obviously it's quite damaging for an author to, for that to happen. But it didn't. And I'm not sure if it's because everybody has forgotten about me or <laughs> if it's because, they, you know, they tried it once and they realized it would not work again. You can't you can't really be cancelled twice. That's sort of the thing. So can I ask you what book you've got on the horizon next please tell me you have another one yeah i'm working on it now um how best to describe it it's another murder mystery it's sort of the notebook meets knives out you're really good at those small little <laughs> pitches, aren't you? Are you you're still doing your podcast? Yeah, uh, my co-host Phoebe is on maternity leave right now. So I'm doing it with a series of guests, which is a challenge. But it's been interesting and fun so far. Yeah, and great. Where can people find that? Our podcast is called Feminine Chaos. And we have a Patreon if you want to support us. We post... Um, exclusive content for subscribers there and also our public episodes of which there is usually at least one per month are available anywhere you get your podcasts brilliant do you know i saw you or maybe the pair of you were a guest on something else and you said in that podcast that phoebe lives in canada that that you'd actually never met in the flesh we and haven't. We were supposed to, and the pandemic yeah. ruined it for us because now we're not allowed to. Well, I guess we now can, but for a long time, you weren't allowed to cross the border. Yeah. As a 2019 or whatever statement, I thought, oh, that's really strange. But I do a podcast with two other people. I think I've seen them like three times in a year now because that's the world has changed. It's actually yeah. pretty common. We do everything on Zoom now. We used to do so much of it in the flesh. And yes, yeah. She and I were Zooming before everybody knew what Zoom was, you know, before yeah. it was even, you know, medically necessary to be on Zoom. But yes, we've never met in person, even though we've been, I, I think, pretty good friends now for probably three years. I have no idea what her legs look like. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or indeed mine. I bet hers look better than mine. <laughs> thank you, Kat. It's been an absolute pleasure. Oh, thank you so much for having me. joined in the actual face which is always very exciting by our music guru Liz Buckley. Hello. Hello. She's, she sounds really mild-mannered and she's not. This <laughs> month I'm gonna try not to be too hard on the choices that 19 year old me made about her spare time or indeed on my mum for not giving me the middle name Pirate. Come on Anne what were you thinking? Louise shut up. As we <laughs> chat about teenage singer-songwriter and Grammy magnet Billie Eilish. Yes. Liz, why are we talking about a 19-year-old? She's great. She's <laughs> great. Absolutely love her. 96 million Instagram followers. It's quite a lot. Be wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, bit of a reference point I looked up. Who follows Madonna? 16 million. Adele, 43 million. Billie Eilish, 96 million. If you want to feel self-conscious as a teenager, imagine that. So yes, that's why we're talking about her, because she's quite big. She's a phenomenon. 
Yes, she is. I mean, I just absolutely love her. I, uh, it feels wrong to sort of say it's not made for me, but I'll admit that the reason I first looked into her was quite a lot of my friends, their children absolutely loved her. And I was almost there sort of like, you know, the aunt going, well, I'm going to have a look and see if she's appropriate because <laughs> I need to know that, you know, my friend's children are being looked after by their little icons. And I just thought she was fucking brilliant. And I was like, can I come? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely adored her. My favourite thing about her when I first started working out who she was in the scheme of things, because she got famous when she was 14. She started recording at 13. I never really agree with the phrase, it's not for me, because I think everything should be for everyone in any which way. And, you know, I have really got into her, but um, I'm not her demographic, you know. Mm. But she absolutely made vinyl really popular with younger kids, which I adore. So, like, she had Record Store Day releases, pink vinyl, all her albums have got different formats. She's got tapes in different colours. And, you know, she's getting kids really into buying the kit, and like I have physical to, music yeah, again, instead of just downloading I mean, stuff. I mean, there's so many accolades about her career. Various different sort of, um, you know, record-breaking things that she's done. And they're just, you know, absolutely mind-blowing the amount of records she's broken. But, like, actually, one billion Spotify plays or something, the younger per- youngest person ever to do that. She is bringing back physical media into my old ass. That's fucking great. <laughs> That was sort of my way in. And then the more I listened to her, she played Reading and Glastonbury and stuff a couple of years ago. And I watched her and I was just like, this girl is fucking amazing. I absolutely adore her. She's contagious. She's funny. She's charismatic. She's emotional. She's beautiful. She's self-conscious. She's um, self-aware. Self-aware. She's brilliant. She's absolutely brilliant. There's a weird mixture of sort of like this honesty that she has where you want to look after her and also this sort of like, fuck you, middle finger, duh. (laughs) She has an amazing kind of signature look at a camera when she's having a photograph taken and it is basically summed up by zero fucks given. (laughs) She just has this look. And yet every fucks given at the same Mm. time. I mean, she is so worried. I, I got anxious for her. When she gives interviews, she's very, very honest about how self-conscious she is, how paranoid she is. Coachella, she forgot words and she spent the rest of the evening panicking that everyone hated her. When she got a Briss Award, the first thing she said was something like, I thought everyone hated me and then I saw you smiling and it made me feel better. She's growing up in public and that's Mm. a very common theme in all of her lyrics, that everyone's looking at her and everyone's judging her and how self-conscious she is but also at the same time you see how kind she is with her fans if i was the level of fame that she was i'd be scared it sounds terrifying <laughs> she's got a huge audience out there and there's a mixture of people in that audience but like she will hug sort of like 12 people at a time she runs towards people and she embraces them and she won't even call them fans actually she's just like everybody that sort of needs my love and want, want to give it back and she has this enormously supportive family. Her mum and her dad, they all got on tour with her. Her brother, Phineas, uh, he produces and co-writes with her and they, they work out most of the songs in his bedroom. You know, they've obviously been offered, like, huge studios and producers and everything. And she said they always just come back to working in his bedroom because mm-hmm. that's where they're most comfortable and where they have rapport. And, you know, in a very teenage way, she's like, oh, we got offered so-and-so, we won't name names, or this studio or that person. They're all about 80, you know? <laughs> It's a teenage reaction, totally right. But, like, you know, her and her brother have fun together and they mess around. And there was a rule when they were growing up, actually, because they were homeschooled, that if they were making music, then they didn't have to go to bed. 
That's going to make your kids make music. Yeah. yeah. So, and messing around is part of making music. So it's just like, you know, the, their parents basically allowed them to be creative as long as that's what they were doing. So you can stay up as late as you like as long as you're doing something interesting. And, you know, that is where their talent lies, really. Her dad learned how to do lighting just so he could go on tour with them. That's adorable. <laughs> so they all go together and she has this huge sort of supportive network of people basically stopping her going mad because she's very very clear about the fact she has depression issues anxiety issues um she has Tourette's as well doesn't she, she when does. she gets stressed she has she'll start to and mm. yeah um but like she will credit her mum always like without her mum she wouldn't be able to do this she gave her the strength to do it and that her mum keeps her sane and grounded and I've seen documentaries and stuff with her mum and she seems like a very reasonable woman that you know is not that sort of pushy showbiz mum but actually someone that's just I want to make sure my daughter's okay and that she has good people around her mm-hmm. and but you know she has all the upsets of a teenager growing up in public there's various documentaries about her there's an uh, Apple Music one that's very good actually and really quite revealing to a point I mean obviously in a certain sense it's a puff piece it's about you know it's made for Apple and it's about a teenager but at the same time there's things in it that I'm quite surprised are in it she sort of says like you know it's her 16th birthday party and she actually is she's at the, the point where she's like I don't know if I'm close enough to anybody that they're here because they're my friend or because they're my people you know, are they in my crew and I'm hiring them? Or? That's heartbreaking. Really heartbreaking. Yeah. And then the following year, they go ice skating because she's a kid. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and there's loads of stuff like she's starting to date and you hear her on the phone and it's like, I love you, not seen you. I've got your tickets for Coachella, but you have to actually hang out with me. You know, she's really vulnerable and it's just sort of like... I was on my own all day today because she's surrounded by adults and actually that means she's on her own in her own world because she's like where are my mates and later in the tour she actually gets to take a friend with her and stuff and it all feels a little bit more solid but she's she's dealing with all of this loneliness and growing up in public and you know being under a microscope and stuff incredibly I think with a lot of humour there's a BBC interview with her on iPlayer at the moment uh, Billy Eilish up close or something along those lines and it starts off very sort of opera and Megan, you know, two people in LA and yeah. in a setting where nobody lives and they've borrowed it and all that sort of thing. But she very quickly gets quite confessional and the, the interviewer says like, oh, last time I met you, you were lovely. And she says, was I? Because she was wearing a balaclava, a full face balaclava because she didn't want to be seen and she's literally tapping her head going, I wasn't okay up here. I'm glad the hero was lovely, but... You know, I was so self-conscious, I didn't even want you to look at me. It does feel like the the public scrutiny of Billie Eilish, or certainly the media scrutiny of Billie Eilish, hasn't ever really treated her as a child. It's been pretty invasive since she got so phenomenally famous, so young. Was she 15 when Ocean Eyes came out? I think she was 13 when she made it, and she was first being uh, interviewed, and then 14 when she got enormous, yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, signed to Interscope. I mean, you know, I mean, that's just ridiculous. Jimmy Iovine and Dr. Dre's label. I mean, uh-huh. just absolutely propelled. And she was she was signed to Platoon, which is quite an ethical sort of setup in the sense that, like, you're not signed long term. You have boosters in place. So it's run by two people that basically do SoundCloud and Apple. And you have all these platforms at your disposal. I mean, it absolutely really helped her in a sense. It gives you creative independence. But she was propelled into a level of 
fame that's absolutely terrifying. She was featured artist on Apple Music and she was on 13 Reasons Why soundtrack on Netflix and the Roma OST and Pretty Little Liars. She's got all these teen dramas. She's like immediately crowbarred into lots of places where people could find her Mm -hmm. and become familiar with her. That level of fame so quickly... I think she handled it amazingly. I mean, I absolutely love her first album. It's so funny. 2019's When We All Fall Asleep, Where Do We Go? It's just, it's so incredibly witty. I, I think she's fantastic because every single song on that album is absolutely brilliant. But like, I, on what I absolutely love about her lyrics is they're all sort of slight rug pulls where mm. you think you know what she's going to say or you think you know what the tone is going to be or something. But they're actually tend to be either the opposite or a joke or she's just so witty stuff like the bad guy video i mean bad guys probably were the biggest song at that time and you see her in a bedroom and it's dark and she's sort of bouncing up and down in a slow sort of sexy manner like singing in a very sort of like sultry way and as the camera pans back you realize she sat cross-legged on the back of a guy doing push-ups <laughs> yeah and she's fully dressed yeah absolutely and, and these huge not. t-shirts and everything so there's a little confession i discovered bad guy today because i am a 44 year old woman <laughs> I noticed that on Spotify it has nearly 2,000 million, or, you know, 2 billion if you do maths, <laughs> listens. And I'm pretty sure that like 80 of them were from me today. <laughs> it's a brilliant, it's amazing. brilliant song. And that video is incredible. It's, it's so good. And, you know, it's so young at the same time. I mean, like, I'm just that bad type, might suggest your dad type. Amazing. Amazing. <laughs> 17. And you're like, You know, she doesn't even mean it as well. I mean, some of the song titles are a bit more blatant, like I wish you were gay. (laughs) She's really, really funny. There's a real gothic aspect to that first album as well. Yes. If you'd have said to me, Mickey, on your way to being 45, you're going to discover a real love for terror pop, I'd have been like, (laughs) fuck off. I'm really happy with my, my music choices. Apparently... Electronic B-movie horror absolutely tickles my pickle. Well, and hers. I, I, I think, I don't, I've never seen a journalist say this, and maybe everyone will totally disagree with me, but to me, she really reminds me of Eminem. I think she, yes, that is a really good comparison. I think she's got that same ironic, witty rapper sort of snarky energy yeah like you know she it's all the videos are really funny and there's always a sort of like little monologue and you know like a narrative that's going on where she's sort of in charge and she lets you know what's going on and it i think she's got the same sort of wit as him and the same sort of style as him and and there's a slight sort of tarantino-esque thing to her videos as well like it's a bit nerdy and it's a bit gory and it's a bit unexpected but she does a lot of like facial liquids (laughs) there's a lot of like black tears or nosebleeds and making her because she is extraordinarily beautiful but like making her face look messy and tear-stained but black tears yeah there's a bit i think it's in the apple doc actually where um the woman who's sort of setting her up for the video is putting these sort of tubes around her eyes so that the black goo comes Mm. out and she says probably just assuming like oh you know poor girl's putting up with this and she says something like oh you you know you're a superstar for doing this and she just goes it's my idea yeah (laughs) but you can see that they are her ideas and actually she directs a lot of her own music videos doesn't she yeah 
She's 19, everyone. Just to remind <laughs> you, she's 19. Mickey, what were you doing at 19? Let's move on. That's her Twitter bio, actually, just 19. And I really like that because it's it's a reminder as much as anything. Like, for fuck's sake, yeah, leave, leave me alone. alone. Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Do we talk about the body image stuff? Because she has had all she sorts does, of She does, so stuff. we have to. Yes. She does, so we have to. That's that's the take, I would say. I mean, so we were talking before this podcast like, about how much we like Not My Responsibility, which is a short film and a track on the new album about body shaming and how brilliant it is. I think it's very articulate. What she says on that is fantastic. It's so clear. She articulates it beautifully. And, like, most of the new album is quite obsessed with body image, actually. So you can see what she's been through the last couple of years. And, like like we were saying, she's sponsored various clothing lines. She wears huge baggy T-shirts. You know, she's famous for wearing sort of bucket hats and beanies and shorts. And, you know, she's there with grazed knees. And, like you say, she's absolutely stunningly beautiful. But she hides it. And, you know, like, you quite often see her performing. And she's literally pulling out these huge T-shirts... Like, she doesn't want it to stick her to her, and she doesn't want you mm. to see even what her form is like. And so she says in that song, If I wear what is comfortable, I'm not a woman. Though you've never seen my body, you still judge it. Mm. And I thought that was just absolutely perfect about what she is doing and what she looks like. And also, she's so self-conscious, you know. She, I mean, she sings stunningly, but she has an incredible soul voice, but she uses auto-tune. Yeah. Like, the level of self-consciousness is is everything. It's not just what she wears, it's how she sings, how she's produced. Yeah, and as well as using... (laughs) As well as using the auto-tune, she also whispers a lot, she sort of mumbles. And videos behind her when she performs, and there's a little clip of her in some video or other where she's literally going absolutely mental because the the videos aren't working and the screens have stopped working and she she's like but i want people to look at that and not me because i mean she's a teenager yeah. who wanted Everyone's i didn't want anyone to look at, at her me. and yeah. judging her and commenting on her and yeah that's that's an awful way to live and obviously it's made her very very self-conscious but you know she's also using that in a fantastic way like she's always been associated with fashion houses like right from the F I think Chanel were the first people that sponsored her when she was very young yeah for Ocean's Eyes they got them on board to give her a style yeah Right from the off, but like Gucci and like Burberry nails, I think, was it Reading or Glastonbury? I'm sure someone will tell me, but like one or the other, she had like Burberry talons. Yeah, her nails um, are mad, man. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how she does anything with those nails. <laughs> so there were two big fashion things recently. She was on the cover of British Vogue mm-hmm. and she was corseted and she looked astonishing but because she was actually wearing something quite revealing obviously she got a load of shit thrown at her for that like she was disappointing people who thought that she'd always wear t-shirts she said after doing that and this is just so obviously true like she did a shoot and everybody went oh my god it's the new billy and you're like She's a pop star, a uh, 96 million Instagram followers pop star. And she did a fashion shoot. She's associated with all these fashion houses. And this, she's got this stunning Alexander McQueen stuff. She's got all this vintage stuff. She wanted to do a nod to Hollywood. And it's build us a new Billy. Like, oh my God, she's changed. What's she up to? She was wearing huge t-shirts. She was wearing all this Nike stuff. And now suddenly she's wearing this. And it's like, it was a shoot. It was a one-off. Like, you look at everything she's doing for the new album, and actually she's still wearing huge jumpers and cardigans and shorts and Mm. all that sort of stuff. It's all tan. You know, she's got a certain look. But she's growing up in public, and she chose to do 
one particular fashion shoes and everyone sort of said oh she's a changed person i used to wear fucking enormous chandelier earrings when i was 16 can't when I imagine sat- that no i'm very glad you can't <laughs> when i was 17 i went i don't like wearing earrings anymore and i stopped wearing them but no one went who's this <laughs> liz what's wrong do we need are you okay you've changed yeah, i mean exactly. like you, that you're growing up in public and everybody assumes that everything is a statement but you know she's had grey hair blue hair green hair brunette hair like you know, she's got very traditional looking hair in quite a lot of her pop videos so to actually just have blonde hair as a 19 year old how is that life changing or astonishing or anything it's not it's just we've got a very lazy media but also <laughs> she did recently use fashion as a statement didn't she so she went Met Gala. Met Gala so she wore Oscar de la Renta gown which is the same as Marilyn wore was it to the Oscars mm. I think it was to the Oscars but she wore it on the condition that they would stop using fur so she can use her power in order to do good. I mean, the stuff that she does, I mean, I, I'm not even going to scratch the surface here, but when COVID started, she did an online concert to help fund COVID research. She did another to fund the families of the crew members because they weren't on tour. She did another thing as mental health ambassador for Ad Council. She's had gigs raising awareness for Texas abortion law changes. She's just put a documentary out about food justice. She's the executive producer. You know, she's very, very aware of the fact that she has clout. Mm -hmm. She's really quite into climate change and making awareness about climate change to the point where she gets quite upset. I do feel like I'm the only person who cares, you know, which I think probably anybody that recycles feels like. She's like banning single-use plastic bottles at her gigs and she's going to make sure that all of the audience members have like a recyclable bottle that they can take in for water and stuff. She, She means it. I think that's the key thing. She... She isn't just doing it to get likes or to be zeitgeisty. She, oh, she means it. She cares. And also the opposite. Like when she took on the Bond theme, she was like, I'm going to get slaughtered for doing this. You know, she can't even think, oh, what a privilege or this will be fun. Or She was just like, the internet will hate me. No Time to Die, which is obviously in, in the great Bond tradition, also the name of the film, is an absolutely smash-tastic Bond ballad. It's so good. <laughs> She's managed to do her justice and Bond justice. And I say this as, a, as people, listeners know, a diehard Bond fan. <laughs> and yeah, when it, when it kicked in, I was like, well, this is the perfect song. It's so good. Those kind of woozy, drowsy vocals that she has that sort of elongates every word and makes mm. it feel like you're falling almost while you're listening to it just works so That's perfectly nice for, yeah. for a Bond theme. Yeah. Mm. Can we talk about her latest album? You've mentioned it briefly previously, but it's called Happier Than Ever and it came out July this year. And it was sort of an accidental album, wasn't it? Well, yeah. So so they were on tour and they had to stop because of COVID. So then it was like, oh, hang on, we've got time so we can do this. Uh, So that's really nice that she also had time to miss touring. Mm. So now she's kind of gagging to get back on the road and sort of like all the things that made her insecure, she's a bit more on top of. It kind of gave her a bit more time it's massively about body image it's all about exes as well but it's much more mature she's very proud of her songwriting now so it's nice to hear her talk about that in a way where she's sort of like i feel like i'm good now like you know she's really embarrassed about the first album she's like well look back on that and i'm a grumpy teen and i'm like i'm not over it i love it i'm just gonna go and listen to bad guy again My favourite is the title track, Happier Than Ever. That one to me felt like it was the one that captured a little bit of when we all fall asleep, where do we go? 
Yeah, so she's done a version of that with the count that counts on Sesame Street. Oh, no wonder I love it. Von Billy Eilish. When I'm counting with you, I'm happy. It's brilliant. Look it up. And that's another example, actually, of like uh, when she kind of pulls the rug a little bit. It's like she's basically saying, when I'm not with you, I'm happier than ever. So you assume certain things from titles. I'm happier than ever. The photo on the front of the album is her crying. The mm. lyric is, now I'm not with you, I'm happier than ever. Yeah, yeah. She always turns things on its head, which is my favourite thing about her. All of the, her lyrics, I, I never expect what she's going to say, and it makes me laugh out loud. I love so much of it. So, like, you know, she sings the most sweet things, and then the next lyric will be blah, blah, blah. And then it will be like, like, she gets self-conscious even within a song, like, oh, you were taking me seriously, so blah, blah, blah. Uh-huh. And, you know, then she'll go, and happy birthday. Oh, happy birthday, by the way. I just, I think it's fantastic. She's like, she even says things on the new album, like, I'm in my brother's bedroom and I'm singing this. It's so literal. Mm-hmm. And it makes people feel very involved and that they know her and they're part of her world. And I think that's her absolute strength because there's no... Like, you wouldn't understand me or you wouldn't know me. It's like you're literally sat with her on the same bed. Do you think she would welcome a a silver-haired (laughs) 44-year-old, probably perimenopausal woman, uh, arriving late at her party, into her party? Yes. (laughs) Billy, I'm there. Yeah, I think think you'd be very welcome. Ball like a girl. Go on, do one, kid. Jenny off the blocks. Welcome to Jenny off the blocks. That time of the week where we question everything we've ever stood for as we discuss all things women's sport. Okay, that's not the kind of statement you've come to expect from me as an opener for this section, but stick with me. Let's start with some good news, courtesy of reality TV star Kim Kardashian and Italian businessman. Andrea Dirty Leeds Radrazzani. He's the owner of Leeds Dirty Leeds, in case that was too subtle. Yes, it is rare that I would highlight either of these people as beacons of moral virtue. But look, credit where it's due, last week they were instrumental in helping the Afghan junior women's football team come to the UK. You might have seen in the news that following the reinstatement of Taliban rule in Afghanistan, hundreds of female athletes have fled the country in anticipation of a clampdown on women's freedoms, led by former senior women's team captain Khalida Popal. The women's youth development team and their families accounted for around 130 of those fleeing, and they had made it as far as Pakistan. Founder of not-for-profit US organisation the Tzedek Association, Rabbi Moshe Margaretin, was helped by Kardashian who paid for the flight and Radrazani to bring the girls to the UK. Let's dream one day they will play in Leeds United, tweeted Radrazani, and it's what all aspiring footballers dream of after all. Of course, I'm being facetious. That was a good thing they all did. Well done them. Probably worth mentioning the Tzedek Association again, since they seem to have been the driving force, but are not as sexy a name as Kim Kardashian or um, Leeds United. And as such, they've not made the headlines. So they are a UK-based charity aiming to reduce extreme poverty, driven by the expertise of the Jewish community. And they also help members of the Jewish community to flee Kabul. You can chip them a quid or two by visiting their website if you'd like, which is tzedek, T-Z-E-D-E-K, dot org, dot UK. Okay, so let's head to tennis, where even having avoided the news the last two weeks, I could not escape from the very worrying story about Chinese women's tennis player Peng Shui. 
For those of you who don't know, Pong disappeared from public eye for almost three weeks after making sexual assault allegations against a senior Chinese minister. Individual players such as Naomi Osaka and Serena Williams expressed concern for the star, a former US Open semi-finalist, and the Women's Tennis Association became involved, calling on the Chinese government to investigate the accusations and lift the blanket censorship that had been imposed on the subject in China. Though the WTA received assurances from the Chinese government that Pong was safe and well, the organisation said that no one associated with the WTA, including officials or players, have been able to contact Pong directly. The International Olympic Committee subsequently stepped in and have had contact with Pong. A photo was released by the IOC of President Thomas Bach apparently having a right old giggle with the 35-year-old via video link. The WTA responded that this did not sufficiently address their concerns. She just wants to be with her friends and family at the moment, said the IOC. Can't you just respect her privacy? Her in no way state-enforced privacy. Yeah? The WTA responded, This video does not change our call for a full, fair and transparent investigation without censorship into her allegations of sexual assault, which is the issue that gave rise to our initial concern. Quite. Now this is obviously a very concerning situation and we'll follow it as it develops. But I can't stress enough how shocked I am at how easily appeased the IOC seemed to be. Lord Sebastian Coe can stick his celebration of this quiet diplomacy where the sun doesn't shine, to be honest. Let's end on some good news because otherwise, you know, we'd be sad, wouldn't we? So congratulations to the England women's rugby team who have obliterated the USA with an 89-0 win last weekend. The win sees them remain as world number one in the rankings. And where's it all come from? Well, it's come from the introduction of full-time contracted players, according to much of the press around this, and, well, just common sense, really. Well done to them. That's all for me this week. I'll be back with more women's sport next time. Welcome to Rated or Dated. Mother, what film did we watch this week? (laughs) This week we watched The Mosquito Coast, released in the UK this week in 1986. Based on the book by Paul Thoreau and adapted for the screen by Paul Schrader, who you may remember from our Rated or Dated on Taxi Driver Mm -hmm. and was the man who wrote Taxi Driver. Yep. And it was directed by Peter Weir, who has been responsible for some stone-cold classics such as Picnic at Hanging Rock, Master and Commander, The Dark Side of the World and The Truman Show, as well as crowd pleasers like Dead Poets Society and Green Card. And it offered something for the moms, Harrison Ford, something for the dads, Helen Mirren, and something for the teenage girls, River Phoenix. Box office gold, right? Right? Yeah, not so much. In fact, it's the only Harrison Ford film not to make its production costs back. What went wrong? Well, that's what Rated or Dated is for. But Ford himself did have a view saying, and I quote, it didn't fully embrace the language of the book. It may have more properly been a literary rather than a cinematic exercise. And to get my powder fully wet, as someone who has read the book, I agree with him on that. The plot, for those who haven't seen it, and to be fair, that might well be because we actually had to go to the darkest recesses of the internet to find it. Ali Fox, that's Ford, is a bona fide genius, albeit one who's been told that he's a genius on at least one too many occasions. (laughs) Either that or he just coincidentally is an insufferable, belligerent and bullying wazzock. 
<laughs> Believing America is close to nuclear war, he forces his family to up sticks and move to the jungles of Central America, where he is sure he will be welcomed with open arms because he's managed to create a machine that makes ice without using fuel. His family, by the way, that's his wife, played by Helen Mirren, who, as Mickey alluded to earlier, he only ever calls mother. And I've probably got enough thoughts on that to fill an Edinburgh show, <laughs> but I'm just going to leave it at this. The fuck? It's so annoying. And he's got four kids, the eldest of which, Charlie, is played by Phoenix. En route to bringing environmentally friendly cocktail hours to the jungle people of Belize, he makes mortal <laughs> enemies with a man of the cloth, Reverend Spellgood, buys a village off a German pisshead, and then off he trots to start a new life, whether anyone else wants to or not. Turns out, it's very much not. and <laughs> Things go from bad to worse and by worse... I mean, I actually had a flashback to my mum screaming, why aren't you leaving him at Helen Mirren the first time we watched this? I mean, open question, what's worse, the environmental disaster he causes or forcing his teenage son to help him murder some people? Oh, what a tricky situation. (laughs) Which maybe that's a good enough explanation as to why it flopped as any. There is, however, an interesting addition to this story 35 years on, and that's that The Mosquito Coast is now a TV series starring Justin Theroux as Fox. I have no further information on that, other than I really hope it came about during a drunken Theroux family lockdown quiz. (laughs) Now, Mickey, Jen, this leads me to my first question. Mickey and I were chatting about this over WhatsApp when we were watching it, and the most interesting, or to me the most interesting thing about The Mosquito Coast is... Fox sees it as a battle between a man of religion and a man of science, when in fact his methods and his attitude to the people he's gone to save are almost exactly the same. You know, in that old, we're not so different, you and I, way. Yes, they're both deeply and also shallowly racist, uh, Fox and the Reverend Spellgood. His saviour complex is is mad as well. It's very Colonel Kurtz, isn't it? He trots off into the jungle thinking he can make them do better. And then actually his true feelings come out when he gets a bit stroppy about something and he refers to a man of colour as a savage. And it takes Mm. mother to say, don't call Mr Haddy that, who's been their friend for ages. So it's always very under the surface. Even when he's in America, he's still like, I won't pay for Japanese goods. How Mm. very dare you? He's xenophobic. And so, yeah, I think in 2021, it's hard to see it as anything other than a white saviour adventure from the start. But also, Mm. I don't know that it was that different in 1986. I don't don't think his intentions would have come across as good to me, even if I'd seen it then or read it then. No, I agree. I don't think it would. But it's maybe way more obvious to 2021 viewers that they are both terrible people than perhaps it might have been. Yeah, I have a slightly different perspective on this in that I didn't really think about Ali as a white saviour at all. I just thought of him as an absolutely mad bellend. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and yeah. that is a fair enough response yeah. to his, his attitude. They're not mutually exclusive, definitely. No, absolutely, absolutely. But I didn't really read into that. I thought, you know, when it opens and he keeps talking about these people being in the jungle and whatever, and he's talking about the the black guys that work on the asparagus farm and he's saying he's not going to buy stuff from Japan and whatever, I'm a bit like, well, this presents is a little bit racist, but where's it going? I didn't actually make the connection at all until you said it, Hannah, about the fact that they've basically both gone on civilising missions. Mm -hmm. The, The actual missionary 
the spell good guy and Ali. I hadn't really thought about that at all. I was just so focused on thinking what a mad bastard he was. <laughs> I mean, it is really distracting. He does keep shouting, ice is civilization, like he's got weird Tourette's. <laughs> <laughs> Interestingly, when I looked at him, I thought, he's, but he thinks he's progressive. He is a Republican who votes Democrat, is what he is. He's one of those people. Cause... I don't think he votes Democrat. I think he votes Republican. Yeah, but do you know what I mean? I think he's kidding himself about who he is. He thinks he sees himself as a really good person. And, yeah. And... He absolutely sees himself as a really good person and he thinks he's doing everyone a favour. And, and I think that's really telling it, actually, in the bit of the plot where having brought civilization via ice to the bit of the jungle that he's just gone and bought, like every good, you know, at least he paid for it instead of just taking mm. it. Small, small positive there. But yeah, uh, so he's already brought ice to them and air conditioning and that's great. And to them, I mean mainly to his family, and then yeah. he decides that's not enough. He needs more applause. He needs more gratitude. Mm. So he, he treks off to go and take it to this tribe that's living somewhere in the middle of Central America. And uh, after a day, obviously, because he's a genius, he's failed to realise that the ice will fucking melt you, Belland. And he just hands him a <laughs> sack of water. And they're not grateful because, I mean, why would they be? It's like socks at Christmas, isn't it? Wet socks at Christmas. Yeah. And so then when he spots the three guys he thinks have been captured, that's really telling of how actually... He makes a really racist... It's really telling, <laughs> like isn't it? Yeah, of how he decides they must be captives. He's such an appalling judge of character that he basically, in that terrible decision or terrible assumption he comes to, he fucks up everything for everybody. You could have stopped it. He's just such an appalling. And I'd be like, yeah. <laughs> he sets a church on fire. Like, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not a believer of, of anything really, but like, I'm not going to fucking chance it on burning a church down. Bloody hell. Yeah. But the thing is, the the annoying thing is, Harrison Ford is excellent in this yeah because i fucking hated him and i was like he's so excellent it's just a shame that the character he is formidably good at playing is so annoying and he's not even annoying because he's just talking and you're like oh he's so clever blah 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 he's just boring he's just full mm. of himself and oh, yeah. angry and like two hours of that no yeah, you would want to get away from him at a party, wouldn't you? You'd be like, okay, I'm just going over here He'd now. He'd be immediately telling you why parties are awful, apart from the fact you can put ice in your drinks because ice is civilization. <laughs> I mean, what do you think the worst thing he actually does is? I mean, I can't, I can't believe what he does to Sorry. Charlie. He, he makes Charlie complicit in a murder. Literally says, I, just, I can't do this on my own. Yeah. I mean, the thing, the bit where, you know, where they can't find him on the houseboat, and then, oh, no, he's gone, he's gone. And they're like, fucking great, let's yeah. go. We're off. Awesome, yeah. he's dead, bothered. Yeah. Let's go back to civilization. Yeah. I, I think probably tells you, I, to me, it says everything about what he does wrong. Like, specifically, yes, he does obviously coerce his child into, like, helping him kill people, which is bad, as parenting goes, yeah. but or just humanity goes. But, like... Just the fact that, like, he's holding his entire family captive, yeah. basically. It's yeah. fucked. And then when they when they make a decision, he punishes them like they're Richard Parker and puts them in the fucking boat <laughs> at the back. Oh, I wish he'd met a yeah. tiger. That would have been amazing. It's obscene. 
Yeah. So what do we make of Mother then? I mean, I have to say, I'm kind of torn about the fact that she doesn't have a name, but it, she doesn't have a name in the book. And I think it's a point that Paul Thoreau's making about this bloke is that's literally what she is. He's just reduced her to a function, right? Yeah, he isn't. She is not an individual in her own right. So I think it kind of works. But what what do we make of that? She has absolutely no agency. She doesn't, you know, she's basically held... I mean, I guess you could say she's in an abusive relationship, couldn't you? Because he is an abusive man, basically. Like, his actions are abusive. I mean, she's the only woman in it, really, apart from a sort of teenager, Martha Plimpton, who knocks around a little bit. I don't think there's anyone else is there, really. few people... The little girls. ...working on the... Yeah, Yeah, but they don't do anything, do they, the little girls? Um, It's so... I mean, I don't really have anything to say about her. Like, she's obviously a victim of his abuse. I wonder if that came across at the time. I wonder if people would have thought about it in the same way at that time. I think she does test that instinct in whether or not people actually understand why some women don't leave, Mm. if that makes sense. She's Mm. painfully passive, isn't she? It's, It's painful. You're like, when that opportunity that Jen mentioned earlier presents itself... And she is umming and ahhing about what to do. And the kids are like, we can go. We can have some freedom. And she's so attached to him because he has had control over her life for so long that she can't leave. And you feel for her, but it's, it is very, very frustrating. And when she does snap and tell him off and you kind of think, oh, maybe, maybe it's turning. And then, no, she just sort of reverts back to being passive i think if it was any other actress than helen mirren it would have been such a nothingy role but she actually does Mm. put a lot of eye movements and tension there that she gets across it's quite interesting the way it builds i guess because i don't think i think you know from the outset you're a bit like well this guy's a bit of a character isn't he he's like you know a bit mad whatever because i've never seen it before i've not read the book i don't know anything about the story etc etc this is like my first kind of Uh, sitting if you will with the mosquito coast so like so initially you're kind of like well he's a bit nuts whatever but you do sort of think well why is she signed up to this this is a bit of a weird jaunt to be going on with him because she get a choice he just sort of packs their stuff you see she smiles that she doesn't have to do the dishes and you know i think we all felt that but yeah (laughs) but you don't i don't think there's no tampons where you're going love (laughs) i don't think you're initially like oh well you know I don't think it's initially obvious that he's sort of essentially abusive. Do you know what I mean? I think it's just like, oh, he's a bit eccentric and he's a bit this and he's a bit that. So I think so. that's my point, really. It's interesting how it builds. I guess, like, her being passive then makes more sense the further into mm. the film you get. Well, I full-on hated him as soon as he turned up on the screen, to be honest with you. Well, I didn't like him, but I don't think I thought, well, this man's abusive. Do you know what I mean? I think I just thought he was, like, annoying and... What well, mad balance, mm. like yeah. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the it was the the Mosquito Coast, the book and the film are they're told by Charlie. They mm. are a teenage boy's perspective mm. on his dad. So, I suppose much much as with all of us, what we feel about our dad is really complicated. So there is sort of an element of his sort of dis- disillusionment as it goes along. Mm. By the end. You know, I really fucking hated him. At the start, I was like, this guy's a prick. And by the end of it, I was just like, this is, 
You have like, you've tipped ammonia into a fucking river. <laughs> like, you've literally turned up and caused an environmental crime. Yeah. What the fuck? He's like a one man version of BP in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's going back to how good Harrison Ford is at portraying how fucking annoying and boorish and controlling and overpowering Ali Fox is. It's almost a shame he's so good because I do think there's there's interesting concepts within the film and I think they have echoes today. I think, you know, obviously the 80s was Reagan and I feel like if Ali Fox was planted into 2021 he would have absolutely been wearing a MAGA baseball cap and, you know, voting Trump and storming the Capitol. I think it's that kind of... Whether or not he agreed with Trump, it's because he sees himself as a man outside of the mainstream. Exactly that. And therefore, yeah, he would have been, yeah, caught up with that completely. Yeah. He would have been absolutely taking down 5G fucking yeah. masts wouldn't he like just fully. by accident jen just by causing an environmental disaster next to them whilst wearing his hawaiian shirt and carrying the podium that he'd stolen <laughs> should we talk about river phoenix briefly because when i was what 13 14 this book came out everybody at school was completely obsessed with river phoenix and i think that went on for his whole career um were you fans I was a bit young, so I mean, I do it sort of later on in the nineties. I think I was a bit like, "Oh, he's pretty," but he, he wasn't around for much of the nineties, obviously, because he sadly died at the age of twenty-three. Mm. But, um, but yeah, I mean, he was very pretty, wasn't he? And uh, and he was a phenomenal actor, like for his age. Yeah. I think so talented. It is, you know, it, it was a a massive loss, really. Two films at River Phoenix is in that I was obsessed with and still stand by me stand Stand by by me me. (laughs) and Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade I I thought you were going to say my own private no Indiana Jones where he is also with Harrison Ford and I actually do think he looks like a young Harrison Ford which is why he works as the sun in the mosquito coast and as a young Indiana yeah I don't think I've seen my own private Idaho by the way guys no I haven't and we could do it for a rated or dated maybe it's coming it's like next year Right, so, The Mosquito Coast, rated or dated? I don't think it's dated because, I mean, obviously I've got nothing to compare it to because I've not read the book, as you have, Hannah, but I think it's still really quite relevant, as we've discussed. So I don't think it's dated, I just think the central character's a cunt. (laughs) And if anything, that's more relevant to more people today. So, yeah, yeah, I, I agree with what... Jen has said, which obviously isn't quite as binary as rated or dated is supposed to be. Once (laughs) more, we find ourselves in this position. But I think because of how annoying the central character is, I I, I could not watch it again and I wouldn't recommend it. So I don't rate it either. But no, I don't think it's dated. Yeah, I think I'd probably fall around the same area myself. I I felt like I should apologise for having made you watch it, which (laughs) probably means that it wasn't rated. But I don't think any it's any less relevant than it was when it was made in 1986. So, yes, not dated either. I hated him, but it was really yeah. interesting. I, can't, no, exactly. I don't regret watching it. I wasn't like, I was just like, oh, my God, he's so annoying. And I think it was, it's still very unusual to have an anti-hero like that on the screen. That you actually, it's painful to watch and listen to him. Now, like, like he doesn't have any of that charm that comes with, like, Tony Soprano or Don Draper, and, you know, they're obviously mm. big anti-heroes that are amazing. But, yeah, I just, it was still a really interesting film. I don't think you need to feel sorry okay. for making us watch Great. it at all. 
in that spirit, Jen, what are you going to make us watch next week? <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, I'm going to make us all watch, for me, the first time, I don't know about you guys, the original A Star Is Born. Is it the original? Because there's oh, loads no, of them. It's, it's not. not the original. Oh, it's is not. Is it the Streisand one? It's the Streisand one. It's the 1976 Streisand version of A Star Is Born. I have never seen any version of it. And can you imagine what happens if I become obsessed and then come back and I've watched all of them? And then I've got a spreadsheet telling you. <laughs> I was just dressed as Lady Gaga. of all the bits. I see the chances of that happening as relatively slim, but we live in hope. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.